Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. I'm really pleased to introduce to you my new friend, Bart Campolo, who is the humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California. And after many years as a prominent evangelical Christian minister, Bart gradually transitioned from Christianity to secular humanism. Most recently, he's worked with the Abraham Path Initiative and the TELUS Group, educating American faith leaders about the causes of and the potential remedies for the modern Israeli-Palestinian conflict, among other ministerial work that he's been doing. Bart, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, I'm really glad to be here. So bring us on board your story. Tell us what your ministry looked like when you were a Christian and how it changed as you became a humanist. My story is well documented. So yes. if anybody listening to your podcast wants to find it, you just Google my name and Indeed. it's all over the place. But the short version is I grew up outside of Philadelphia. My father was a college professor at an evangelical Christian school. And he was a Baptist minister before that. And he became one of the world's kind of prominent evangelical Christian preachers. So, like, he's a cool guy in that world. And so I grew up in that family, but I didn't believe in God until I was in high school. And I got converted by a kid in my high school who brought me to a youth group, 300 kids, nicest people I'd ever met. And they were enveloping and, and making space for kids who were really on the, on the outskirts of high school life. And I was a nice kid, and this looked like a club for nice people, and I wanted to join. I knew all the language from growing up in evangelical Christianity, so I played along. I just went along with the group, because I wanted to be part of the community. It wasn't the doctrines that attracted me, it was the community. But eventually, you know, you're on a high school youth retreat. There's 300 of you. you got candles. You're all singing, God is amazing. God is wonderful. And you feel something. Yeah. And so when I had what I guess you would call a transcendent moment, it validated the whole thing. I mean, I'm sure if I'd have been in a synagogue or a, right. a Jewish summer camp, it would have... Had the context been right. Yeah. Right. It would have validated that. It, right. you know, but it validated Christianity for me. And that was it for me. I was in. And I was so into following Jesus that the first thing anybody asked me to do was to run a summer camp in a ghetto called Camden, New Jersey, which was near Philadelphia. And I went, and then I was just blown away by urban poverty. And I spent the next 30 years as an evangelical Christian inner-city missionary. And, and, and the short version of that story is, over that time, I became more and more committed to social justice and more and more committed to loving relationships and to tribe and to community. And I became less and less able to believe the supernatural story around which our whole thing was built. And so about six, seven years ago, I was living in Cincinnati and I was part of an inner city community working with poor people directly. I had a bike crash. And by this time, I have passed through every stage of, of evangelical heresy. Like, I'm marrying gay people. I'm a universalist. I believe everybody's going to heaven. So you're, you're practically there. I'm super progressive, yes. But I have this bike crash, and I almost die. I'm concussed, and I'm out of touch for about a month. And when I come back, and when my, I get my consciousness back, I just think to myself, you know what? A, my identity is in my brain. Because if you smash it into a tree at 40 miles an hour, it changes. And B, I'm going to die. And when I die, this identity is going to be no more. And, and I know for many Jews, this is not a radical thought. Right, indeed. But for an evangelical Christian, or even somebody who's passed through evangelical Christianity, that is, you go, oh, this life is really all I have. 
of course, the irony being that this near-death experience is often the inverse story. They go one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. they really do. They really do. And, and the weird thing is, is that it wasn't like I, my dad's sort of like, if you'd have been wearing a better helmet, you'd still be a Christian. <laughs> but I mean, the truth right. is, I had already, I had already done all the intellectual right. work. Right. I didn't think the Bible was authentic anymore. I, I, you know, it was just a matter of, I sat down with my wife and just said, you know what? This is all there is. And she says, I'm with you on that. She said, you ought to stop being a professional Christian. You don't believe any of this stuff. And I think like we should live out our lives authentically being what we are, just as if there is a good and loving God who has the world's best interests at heart. That has implications. If this life is all that there is, that has implications. And how do you make the most of this life? And what's interesting is, is that what I came to conclude was the way to make the most of this life looks very similar to being an Orthodox Jew or to being a really good evangelical Christian. Right. It's loving relationships. Right. It's doing work that makes a difference for other people. It's cultivating a sense of gratitude. You don't need any of these religions or their more esoteric qualities to arrive at these conclusions. People, people came to these conclusions and they developed codes, ways of being, ways to live together, tribal identities. All due respect, like anthropologically, they invented religions to right. codify the values that they already had. You know, it isn't any of these religions that invented the idea that you should love your neighbor. Right. It was the idea that you should love your neighbor that said, like, we should come up with a story for that. By the way, one of the most blinding narratives that keeps us from understanding the anthropological truth of what you speak is not necessarily the Jewish story, per se, but the monotheistic story, the notion that a certain kind of ethical behavior, a way of walking through this world with baseline decency, was somehow introduced by monotheism, I think has been a terrible disservice to understanding the human condition, as if monotheism and its ethical baggage were innovative, when in fact they were iterative. That's a shame for understanding the... You feel like monotheism gets a bad rap? No, it gets an unduly... It gets too much credit for, for introducing ethics. I said it clumsily, but, but fundamentally you can walk through this world, especially as a Jew, where Muslims and Christians will on some level identify with you as a fellow monotheist. Absolutely. There's a mutually affirming and blinkered shared story about how monotheism brought ethics to the world. Yeah. And that is a disservice to the human story. When you step out of any of those traditions, like if I had become a Jew, if I had become a Muslim even, my family would have, they would have been like, oh, you got the branding wrong, but like, we're okay with you. Right, right, right. The first thing that happens when somebody sort of approaches you as a formerly believing person is they say, gosh, on what are you going to base your ethics? Yeah. Like, like, how do you know what's right and wrong now? It's very troubling. It's It's a troubling question. How can you be good without God? Right. I've encountered it many, many times, and I I am a believer, and, and nevertheless, I'm deeply troubled by that because I don't associate the belief in God with any necessarily higher ethic. The point is, even in your lived experience, right. can you really judge the quality of a person's character by their religious identification or by their theology? And the answer is... Or by the absence or presence thereof. Yes. Yeah, you That's just right. can't. That's right. So I have a, a quick question, but then I want to get into ideas with you. But I want to ask you a question about your, your career when you go from a deeply religious evangelical context to a humanist context is your tribe and your profession and your your livelihood. I noticed that on your website you refer to yourself as a community builder, counselor, conveyor of hope. And I wondered if, as accurate as that title might be, you might nevertheless sometimes pine for a 
more convenient point of reference that other people understand, such as guru, rabbi, priest, just for convenience and in, in, in showing people who you are. Or if on the contrary, the roundabout quality of the way you describe yourself and the lack of an easy category to describe what you do actually is your opportunity to open conversations. I would trade all those opportunities for just a nice, simple, clear identity. I mean, I'm the, I'm the humanist chaplain at USC, and that's as close as I come to having a title that people understand. They go, oh, you provide pastoral care for college students, and I do. Right, so that works. Yeah, the difficulty is, is that a lot of the language, it's not Christian people or Jewish people or Muslim people that constrict me. It's hardcore atheists who I don't really identify with, you know, kind of the anti-theist thing. Right. So if somebody says to me, what are you at root? I would go like, oh, I'm a minister. There's a minister of agriculture in England, right? Right, right. And they tend to the needs of people agriculturally speaking. I'm a, I'm a religious leader. I tend I try to help people answer life's ultimate questions, like every good rabbi I know. I'm a minister. I, I minister to people's spiritual and social and emotional needs. But that word, minister, people right. lump that in with supernaturalism. And they say, well, and I know you're, you're selling some kind of uh, woo-woo. Right. And I go like, no, no, no. I'm just trying to meet people's needs. Right. You're ministering to them. Yeah. You're, you're hoping to serve them. The other thing, you want to talk about what I gave up, is if I was a Jewish minister at USC, I could work for the Hillel House. And the whole Jewish community would support me to do that work. And I would have a salary. If I was a Catholic minister, I could work across the street from you here at right. the Catholic Center. Right. As a secular humanist minister, there's no community there's to no support what I do. There's no it's in yeah, I can't right. raise money easily yeah, to, to do this kind of work. And yet, they're all, half that campus is secular, and those kids are sometimes literally dying, but figuratively, they are, they are starving for somebody to help them make meaning. Right, there's no herd. I don't mean herd in a herd mentality way. I mean, there's no way to pool the human resources of people who share this ideology because there's no social structure for it. And, and they need a narrative. They need, a, they, they, they need that story that says, right. because the world is this way, we're going to act this way. So I want to play a game with you. This is a new uh, interviewing technique I'm developing here. I want to Have you played this game with other people? No. no I'm the first one. Nice, so, nice. So here's the game. I'm going to sound off ideas about okay. the religious universe that are part of your universe. I'm going to tell you something that troubles me or a definition, and I want you to bounce back with me on it and see how it lands with you or doesn't land with you and how it shapes your universe. So it's like an intellectual Rorschach test. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. All right. So the first word we're going to share is ideology, and here's the frame for it. In 2008, when the world was collapsing in the housing industry, Alan Greenspan was confronted by Henry Waxman, who is a representative here from Southern California and L.A., about... And Alan Greenspan at the time was in charge of... He was the outgoing chairman of the Federal Reserve Reserve. Bank. Waxman says, do you think that this means that your ideology, implicitly your capitalist ideology, is mistaken? And, and, And here's what Greenspan responds in part. He says, what an ideology is is a conceptual framework for the way people deal with reality. Everyone has one. You have to. To exist, you need an ideology. The question is whether it is accurate or not. All right. First of all, I think he's right about everybody has one. You grow up in a family. You grow up in a culture. You live in one. Yeah. Yeah. there, There is no such thing as a human being without an ideology. The question is not, is it accurate, as much as, is it useful? If you ever talk to somebody who's used hallucinogenic drugs, you're perspective on reality is just that. It's one perspective, and it can be altered. And the question is, which is real? And the answer is, 
neither of them is real. Because I'll, I'll tell you something about your eyes, is if your eyes didn't give you a kind of information that enabled you to gather food, people with eyes like you would cease to exist on this planet. Natural selection would take care of them. Etiologies are similar, that there are etiologies that cause people and groups to thrive, and there are etiologies that don't work. The shakers. Right, they're, 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 they had a great well, etiology. Two left, I think. Yeah, yeah, because part of their etiology was that God doesn't want you to have sex. Right. Well, you know what? That meme is not likely to catch hold and, and, and to persist. Richard Dawkins has that notion of memes, which are ideas that propagate, they're self-propagating the way genes propagate. And the question is, how do they help you move through the world? And I would say that the deeper question is, your ideology and your values are going to be related to each other, but they're often not exactly the same thing. So that some people value loving relationships, but they believe in free market capitalism. And I think that sometimes, as in 2008, your experience of reality is such that it goes like, I need to reevaluate the relationship between my ideology and my values. So I get what you're saying. I certainly agree with it. But it even raises the possibility that how useful it is is also irrelevant insofar as usefulness is going to also be radically subjective. And one can... Yeah, useful to get you where? Right. And, and how and at whose expense? And your flourishing can come, and in, indeed inevitably will come, with flourishing for those around you, ideally. But someone's going to pay for that outside your circle, or your flourishing will come at the expense of someone else. Do you believe that? Potentially. Do you believe that every form of flourishing necessarily harms somebody else? I believe it's, it's possible. And I believe that it's certainly true that your flourishing can do that. Often I, I, does. And, who's, and I do believe this. I do believe that in this radical subjectivity which you articulate, that it will be perceived that way. And if it's perceived that way, it might as well be. Let me stop you for a second, yeah. because what I'm going to say is, I would say that one of the most characteristic things of the ideologies I see around me is growth. That you're always trying to maximize profits, that you're always trying to squeeze more in or get more out of things. We live on a finite planet with finite resources, where ideologies always come into conflict, or, or where people, where somebody's flourishing diminishes expense to someone else is always in, a, in, a, in an atmosphere of limited resources. So if you could introduce into the ideology one concept, yeah. which would be the concept of enough. We have enough people. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to maintain a static population. I think then you could find that people could flourish. Do you believe in progress? Are you talking about moral progress? Or are you talking about technological progress? Either or. We live very differently now than we did 10,000 years ago. Yeah. And, and the change is happening at an exponential rate. Has social media fundamentally changed the way that young people relate to each other? Of course it has. has it Fun, fundamentally. Fundamentally. Really believe that? Yeah, yeah. We always worried about what other people think. But if you're worried about what other people think 24-7, and, it, and if it dominates your decision-making, what I'm trying to say is, I believe that there was a time when supernatural mythology was the best way for a society to promote goodness among its people. I think I look at the world around me today and I go like, I'm not sure that those things haven't outlived their usefulness. That as we've come to better stories and a better understanding of where we come from and how the world works, that the idea that like people get sick because God did something, ultimately religions either reshape themselves or they, they become irrelevant. Because when people come up with better stories, they're not able to buy those old stories. A lot of my secular friends think that religion is a bad thing. They say religion poisons everything. And I always say, like, religion was the best thing 
There would be no civilization without it. Was it all that? It was the best thing we had at the time. No, I'm asking you, really? Yeah, you would have no polio vaccine without religion. You would have no university without religion. Yeah, I, you would I, ha- I probably wouldn't have had my people being slaughtered by the thousands. There of are some people. downsides. Was religion, as you said, the best organizing principle to, to do anything? Forget progress or regress. Just to exist in the moment. I mean, that strikes me as a, a, a hard thing to argue. I can understand why you would say it had its costs and its benefits, and maybe it was a wash. I can understand why. Well, you now would... here's here's what I would really say. Depends on who you were. Yeah, right. Depends on depends so on. So you agree with me? It all comes in, it all comes with someone's got to pay the price. It depends on who you were. If you're on the short end of the stick. Now, then... here, and here's the question I've got for you. Yeah. Is can you imagine a time at which people become aware enough of their history and in touch enough with their values? that they begin to engineer a society that works better for more people. Can, I'm, I'm just no. asking. You don't, okay, no. so you don't not, believe not in, in the, that. Not in the there moral. is no such thing as moral progress. No, okay. I, I do not believe in moral progress. I believe that every generation has to relearn the core lessons. That's why we still read Aristotle and Plato and the Bible. Because if, if, if we had just learned it, we could learn it. But surely we look around the world and say... As a species, we have not. One cannot reasonably say we have learned these things. In fact, we can't even agree on what we want to learn. I'm not talking about which religion is best. I'm saying we can't even agree on which fundamental moral principles we're going to prioritize. A, I don't think religion is deserves such a great rap as having done us such a good service in the first place. I think that we as a species are coded to have proportions of, of raw enmity and aggression and... Raw and, cooperation and Yeah, love. cooperation yeah. and empathy. The capacity to look in each other's eyes and, and feel each other's emotions without actually touching each other is, is an amazing thing. I don't have an answer to the question I pose to you. I just act like I have yeah. an answer. I don't actually... No, no, answer. it's a good answer. What I would say is, is, this is what's interesting to me, is that evolution, natural selection, all of that stuff, if you study it, you understand where the competition and the cooperation come from. Right. It's impossible from an evolutionary perspective to imagine... Right, they're two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. You're agreeing with me. What's never (laughs) happened before is you've never had a species that was aware enough of that process to mess with it. And we may not be that species. And we may or may not be that species. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess we'll find out. This is a terrible game you're playing. Because because we were supposed to play multiple rounds and and you got one word. Before we return to the bully pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes. And whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. Agnosticism. On your website, you say that technically I am indeed agnostic. I like the fact that you say that. I like agnosticism because, to me, agnosticism is the only scientific way to approach religion. Atheism is, in fact, to me, a religious proposition because atheism asserts an unprovable thing 
as if it were fact. Right. Intellectually, that's the only credible position to in take. In the Enlightenment scientific model, it's the only credible position to take. Uh, atheists of, present themselves as if they're sort of rationalists, but in fact, it's a religious position to be an atheist, isn't it? I'm a religious agnostic. But the question is, do you live your life according to like your best guess? So you're a functional atheist, but a philosophical agnostic. Exactly. Because you ask me, like, have you made any decisions for years on the basis of the idea that there's a, a personal God in the universe that actually will judge your behavior? Oh, no. That hasn't, that hasn't entered into my mind right. for years. When you gave a dollar for charity, it wasn't in your uh, supernatural bank account. No. You're going to withdraw. I'm Come. storing up no treasures in heaven. Uh, okay. So let's talk about the difference between spirituality and numinousness. Oh, man, now you got to describe numinousness for me. Okay, so numinousness is sort of like deism. It's a way of acknowledging that there is a, an organizing power to the universe. Spirituality seems to me the belief in connective tissue that is perceptible emotionally but not by the senses. The way I hear you talking about it is that spirituality could not be talked about or cannot be apprehended except by sentient beings. That by definition, you need to have something that's experiencing spirituality in order for spirituality to exist. There's something between us, right? Mm. Um, that the connection doesn't exist if one side of the connectors isn't connecting. Spirituality is between us. Morality is between us. Do you use the word spirituality in describing your own yeah, connectedness? Yeah, I, 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 I think of myself as a minister, and I'm trying to cultivate the secular spirituality I of see. people because the question is, do I believe in the transcendence? And I would go like, yes, I do. Do I believe it was supernatural? Oh, no, I don't believe, I don't believe in anything but energy and matter. And you say, like, but you're saying that when you put 5,000 people in a room together and they're all singing, love is what matters, love is what matters, that something happens in that room that a sociologist might call collective effervescence, where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And I go, oh yeah, if you don't believe in transcendence, you haven't been to the right rock concert. Right, right. You haven't used the right drugs. You haven't had sex with the right partner. Right. Like, of course I believe in transcendence, where, where something emerges between us that is bigger than just you and me in a room together. Something happens when people are together and you say, like, do you believe in it? Believe in it, I cultivate it. Like I, I organize dinners and I put certain kinds of questions on the tables and sometimes I dim the lights and, and light candles and I say, look, I'm trying to manipulate you guys into feeling closer to each other than you normally would. And we sing a song at the end, because singing a song and we, hold, and we hold hands and you go like, wait, what do you, I'm trying to make something spiritual happen. And you say like, but you're doing it in such a scientific way. And I go like, oh yeah, it's, it's all happening in people's brains. Do you think that in engaging with people who are suspicious of atheists, you know, atheists in like the last Pew research. Least trusted people the in the world. The least trusted people in the world, which is sobering. There's all kinds of concerns going on that are sociological and cultural. Yeah. I'm concerned about the invisible aggressiveness of the rationalist camp, which is the following. By the way, aggressiveness, and it's invisible because it's unintended. It's invisible because it doesn't come from a place of aggression. It comes from a place of goodwill, which is why it's so complicated to me and so dangerous. I think that exponents of rationalism often substitute reasonableness for rationalism. And when you substitute reasonableness for rationalism is an ideology. It's a system. It's an ideology. It's a way of organizing the world. Reasonableness 
reason, rationality, those words can often have overlapping uh, spheres of meaning. But when we say reasonableness and we mean rationalism, what we're really saying is, be reasonable, dude. When you say be reasonable, what do you mean? So if, 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 if you do something that I think is uncool, I'll say it's unreasonable. Like It wasn't reasonable of you to kick me in the shin right now just because you wanted to get a word in edgewise. You could have just asked me. It wasn't reasonable. Now, what happens is when we speak of rationalism, I think that rationalists, of which among whom I count myself, rationalists often project what is their ideology as if it were, in fact, reasonable. And when you're saying reasonable, what you're really saying is the other person should you know, be meeting you halfway. When I think, was it reasonable, I said, do you mean do I have a reason for it? Do I have evidence? Like, did I reason my way to that thing? And, right, and, yeah, and, no, yeah. And so, but when most of us say, be reasonable, right. what we're saying is, is be nice, be open-minded, be, be, be willing to... Be engage, willing to engage on, a position on, on other shared, than your own. On, yeah, 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 but on shared terms. Be tolerant. Are, be fair-minded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that when you pose your ideology as fair-minded, what you're really doing is imposing in a kind of colonial way that my way is fair-minded, so you should be playing in my, in my sandbox. Yeah, you're saying play by my rules. Right. And that's, a lot of times when and, people say be reasonable, what they're really meaning is play by my rules. Right, and the problem is that the word reason in the word reasonable overlaps with the word rational. And so the opposite of rational sounds like irrational. Don't be irrational. Don't be unreasonable. And the interchanging of these words, I think, is a violence. It's a violence that rationalism imposes on the world. Because what it's really saying is if you don't adopt rationalism as a way of apprehending reality, you're being unreasonable. And what is rationalism as a way of apprehending? Rationalism is by the Enlightenment project of the scientific method, and uh, it overlaps with humanism, but it's not synonymous with humanism. And it says that I can grasp reality more accurately through... Empirical. Yeah, what I'm calling the scientific method for sure. Sure, sure. Than you can by your religious or numinous lens. Okay. For example, the other day on a TED Talk, I heard a person talking about inner and outer realities. She talks about why you should have vaccines and all kinds of stuff. And so she's saying, you can have your internal reality. And internal reality sounded a whole lot like code for your idiosyncratic, parochial, yeah. blinkered way. Yeah. But Don't bring it talk, into the public sphere. But when we, when we talk, we should really talk about the reality reality the external reality, implicitly, the truer reality, which is the rationalist argument she was posing. That, that subtle hierarchization of ideologies. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how you can avoid that. So you're just another religion. When it comes to a discussion about polio or data compression, all over the world, everybody speaks one language. It's the language of science. That's how everybody makes those decisions they speak all the language, they over speak the world. They speak the same language, but they're not all saying the same thing. Scientists disagree all the time. And then a scientist would say, yes, that's the beauty of science. It's precisely the flexibility. Of it. I mean, they're just going to, in an ideological way, articulate why the lack of uniformity is, in fact, its strength. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I actually am grateful for the polio vaccine. I believe in the theory of evolution. I mean, I'm, I'm not arguing against no, 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 it. I, I forget who it was who said, like, there are different spheres of, you know, that, that science takes place in this one sphere. And Stephen Jay Gould. Uh, yeah. And, uh, non-overlapping magistrate. Right. Non, yeah, exactly, there you go. And I think that when you're a scientist, mission creep. Like, it's, it's very hard not to see that as a way of understanding 
right. everything. Because it's your ideology. And you're blinkered to the... To, I mean, yeah. surely you, you, of all people, know that religions do the same thing. The minute you think you have a religion that has the golden key... The magic key. To, yeah. The key is to God, and God is the most creepy of all the creepers you know i mean the, it's the idea that most uh, yeah. colonizes every other idea so what you're doing is, you, is you're you're just butting heads exactly because it's the nature of human beings to become religious about things maybe the best thing we can do is rather than trying to convince other people mm. and ourselves right to not be universalizers in our adoption of a worldview is to try to convince other people and ourselves that every worldview ought to be reasonable in the kindness sense, ought to be compassionate. You say out loud, I'm not trying to convert you to my way of thinking, but you know that if you were put on an accurate lie detector and they said, do you wish that person would think like you? You go like, yeah, I wish everybody would think so like here, me. Like, just admit, that, you wish everybody thought like that's you. A, that's the tragedy. That is, that, is, that is a painful, painful tragedy. Speaking as a Jew who is committed to a particularist vision of the world whereby we affirm that we do not want the world to be Jewish, to think Jewish, but we have been the object of other people's attempts. Sure. But you, you tell me you don't want everybody to think like you. You may not want them to be Jewish. I, you may not want them to have all the rights and privileges that it, you know we don't all get to go on the trip. But even the Muslim, you want that Muslim to look at Judaism in an accurate fair, reasonable way, which is to say the way you see it. No, no, I want to advance my interests. And the minute I say the same thing you just said my way, which is I want to advance my interests, I acknowledge that everything I see is merely an interest, a self-serving direction and orientation. And you're like, I celebrate that. I want everybody out for themselves. I know. I don't want it. I see it as a fact regardless. And and it's, it's, it's irrelevant what I want. That No, no, no. That's that's where you're wrong. It's not irrelevant what you want. Because he, that, that's, that universalizing quality of human beings is all about desire. That's well, why we do I'm it. I'm divorcing myself from that universalist impulse is what I'm oh, saying. Oh, I see. You, I'm, you've, I'm, you've transcended your own desires. No, I'm saying that my desires... Congratulations, I, I, you're no, a Buddhist. I have not transcended them. I've circumscribed them. I've, I've looked at the world and I say, I have no expectation or desire that the KKK, racist, whatever, should somehow... Change his mind about me. Right. You have no desire for that. I'll tell you what I have a desire Come for. On. I have a desire no, to... to I, I don't buy that for I have, half a second. You know why I don't desire it? I don't see any way to it. Well, and, then, you're, then, then you, you lack imagination. Because I know KKK people who have changed their I'm minds. I'm sure they can. I, I, I'm sure you do. Yeah. I mean, we can all name examples. But I, that, so does, wait, that doesn't mean... What anything. I'm saying is, is, it, is, is if it is possible and if it is desirable, I desire it. But it's in my interest. Not because I think my ideas are better. I do think they're better. But I, only, I know that I only think they're better because they're just mine. Not because they're better. And I, and I don't actually have any... But embrace that. Embrace that. I think they're better. I, I know that. I know that it's because they're mine. Wait, wait. The minute you're talking to yourself, I mean, all I'm doing is talking to myself. It's like American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism, the best country in the world. Blah blah blah. Well, sure, you can say it all you want, but the minute you start saying that, all you're really doing is talking to yourself, and at some point, it becomes at least very uninteresting. The more interesting thing to say is that we have intractable differences. Where is the beauty in the difference? Where can I celebrate the difference? And when that difference becomes conflicted, rather than convenient side by side living. Like, it's great for us to talk about the differences between the Mexicans and the Americans because we're two countries in peace. We have a lot of interchange. It's great. I love it. 
But when I, you, I believe me, I understand. As soon as you pull out the word intractable, because I spent four years working in Israel and and, and the occupied territories, so like right. as soon as you pull out the word intractable, you go like, oh, I see, I know where you're coming from. Like you, 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 you think I'm a fatalist? Well, you have you have a life experience with intr- with intractability. I have a sense that I can change things, but if I'm going to do it, I'm not going to do it because it's better. I'm going to do it either because it's better for me and I'm just going to own it that it's better for me, or I'm going to say... On a finite planet, eventually you will come to a place that on some level, what is good for other people is good for you. Help me define what that is. Do you really think you have some kind of insight into that? I mean, think of compassion, right? Who am I? I think that? I have no more in- this Yes, table. yes. No I one's going to say compassion's a bad thing. We all think it's a- well, what happens when compassions conflict? Competing goods. Look, look, look. What I'm going to tell you is if I chart my understanding of the idea that what the interconnectedness of human behavior, yeah. the question is, do I as an educated human being in 2017 have access to and maybe even have imbibed a greater sense of the interconnectedness of human relationships than somebody in the 1800s. And I would say, yes. Oh, you're breaking my heart. Really? Yeah, I have access you to think, greater... You th- I know more about the way in which the pollutants that I pump into the atmosphere here get into the Gulf Stream and end up somewhere else. I wait, wait, you're acid gonna, rain, you're gonna, just acid rain. You're I know tell more about that. someone who lives next to an open sewer about that kind of interconnectedness just because you happen to understand molecules whereas they actually live it they know that they can't have their kids walking barefoot I grew up in Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley walking barefoot why? why? that was a luxury of pavement that the, it's, it's, like, it's like a carnivore who eats their meat blandly and unworried about I had this luxury of not worrying about because only a couple generations before parents would tell their students to wear shoes their kids I'm sorry to, to wear shoes because there was a real risk that risk had been paved over literally mm-hmm. for me and I, you know you're probably right. No, no, don't don't concede. No, no, no you're probably don't. right. You're probably right. At the risk of losing the thread here, I think what I'm trying to communicate to you is my earnest belief that, and it may just be a hope, but my earnest belief that people who see the world differently can get along better if they are educated to the point where they can at least understand why they see the world differently and why people see the world the way they do. One of my favorite books over the last few years was Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. And it was a scientific analysis of where people get their moral inclinations from. And at the end of the book, Haidt's not saying like, and you can use this information to change the mind of the guy next door. What he's saying is, is you can't change the mind of the guy next door, but understanding why he thinks the way he does is going to help you relate to him in a more positive way. So, so maybe we're agreeing, because that doesn't that doesn't feel like a disagreement to me about where I am. It just acknowledges that rather than attributing an absolute good to certain attributes, qualities of compassion or respect or whatever, all I'm asking is that we understand that that which in this person's experience may indeed be an expression of respect. That same act may be the opposite for us for any number of rational and reasonable reasons. Yes. Jonathan Haidt will tell you, like, you have evolved to have these, like, kind of, like, seven kind of core desires, purity, safety, compassion. These things, they evolutionarily emerge, but they get expressed differently in different cultures, which is why your act of respect in a different culture would seem like an act of disrespect. And so we're going to be in conflict over that. Right. Potentially. Okay. Potentially. 
or at least misunderstanding, unless we both read a book like Jonathan Haidt's book, and we get to the place where we go like, oh, that's how he came to that. When people understand the root of the difference between them, yes, it doesn't erase that difference. Right. But I'll tell you, I think that it would be really interesting for people who have differences, mm-hmm. but who had a common understanding of where those differences came from. Mm-hmm. I wonder how that would change their interaction over generations. And we have not experienced that. We've experienced people coming and encountering people that think very differently than they have, but not that had a kind of a rational scientific understanding of why that person believes as they do, why they feel as they do, why they want what right. they want. It could want. be non-rational. It could be purely emotional understanding. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When people have a rational understanding of where their irrational impulses come from, I think that they will interact with each other differently. And that may actually ultimately lead to a greater commonality of the actual impulses. I get that, and that's ridiculously I, hopeful. Right, no, no. But we, why, why engage in anything less than hopefulness? I, I, I'm game for the hopefulness. I just, I wouldn't want us to bank on it. I think we all experience that on one-on-one, where we've achieved that with 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 differences that we've overcome or conflict that we've been able to negotiate successfully, because. It, 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 it's a truism that you know when you get to know your adversary, it's a different thing, and 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 I get that. This is a different level, but really, yeah. yeah, but but it, yes, but it grows out of the same. So but here's, I'm, here's I'm my always reminded of though that, that how cautious we have to be about that is the stories. This may be completely apocryphal, but the stories of the opening days of the Civil War, when the gentlemen soldiers would cross the lines and shake each other's hands, on the assumption that this. Both of them thinking that this would pass, whatever, and that they respected each other, and there was there was this a priori, actually already kind of being there, or at least open to being there, which then led to the most devastating war the nation has ever experienced. I I just want to respect the possibility of what you're saying going in the wrong direction, even though temperamentally, and in my rational mind, I actually agree with you. I'm with you. I I, I want to spend my time realizing that hope as much as you do. I'm going to ask you one question. You just you used to use a really interesting thing. Like you said, I'm not going to bank on that, which meant like that's an interesting idea, but I'm not going to stake myself on it. So it raises the obvious question. What are you going to bank on? You're right to have heard it that way, but that's not what I meant. Okay. What I meant was I imagined myself to, in fact, do those things. It, it may be self-congratulatory, but I try. When I say I don't bank on it, what I mean to say is I'm not going to assume that for all of my efforts that it will pay off. I don't see anything better to invest in, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be skeptical. I'm going to do it even though I'm not sure it's going to work. And that's one definition of faith. Um, Right, which is, you know... um, and, and, And so if somebody says to me, Bart, do you live by faith? I would go like, by that definition... I certainly do, because I'm agnostic. I don't know what will work. What I do know is this, is that living for love, whether or not it works for anybody else in the future, whether or not it works for our species, whether or not it wins, it works better for me now. And I I go across the street to those students, and I try to evangelize them to live by love to pursue relationships over material wealth. And you go like, do, cause you, do you think that'll, that, 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 that'll really work? Do you think? I'm like, I don't know. Right. But what I do know is, is that 
I love that kid sitting in front of me and I believe that his best chance or her best chance of flourishing is to adopt this value system and this way of life and that's why I'm selling it. All right. Bart, thank you for a terribly stimulating conversation. Lots of fun and really a pleasure to get to know you. Oh, it's a joy to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Until the next time. All right. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.